Welcome to the Growing the Green Economy podcast, where we talk with the innovators, policy leaders, and activists that are leading the transition to a sustainable green economy. I'm your host, Connor Bronsden, political and tech consultant and policy writer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. My guest today is Mike Eliasson, an architect, mass timber specialist, passive house aficionado, and livable cities advocate. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Can you tell the viewers a bit about your uh, background and expertise? I'm an architect. I've lived in Seattle for 15 years. Did two stints in Germany as well. Both of those stints were very much oriented towards very sustainable buildings, passive house, mass timber, kind of innovative construction. And so I've been here in the States for quite a while with my wife, trying to push a lot of these things that I think are positive for the environment and kind of a good model of how we should be designing and building cities. I know we've talked before about Europe being ahead of the U.S. on a variety of these sustainable building practices, such as mass timber, passive house, and other areas. I'm curious on on kind of two points. Are there areas where the U.S. is ahead of Europe, or mostly do we need to kind of learn from Europe and catch up? This is a good question. I would say that there are two places that were way ahead of Europe. One is the adoption of wood frame buildings. Wood frame buildings are actually relatively rare in most of Europe. A lot of the wood that is used is more solid panel, glulam, CLT, DLT, and secondary value-added wood products. The other one that we're really, really exceeding them on is construction costs. And this has kind of been a big issue of mine. For the last couple of years, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Bayern was to kind of get a better handle of why our costs are so much higher. We are, I would say in Seattle, roughly double major cities in Germany and Austria, even Switzerland, in terms of construction costs. In Vienna, they're building passive house, social housing for much less than we are, about half per unit. Wow, that's a pretty substantial difference. In what ways can we learn from what's happening in Europe and take those learnings to the U.S.? So I was not as successful in figuring out this component during my duration there. I would say that the procurement process in the U.S. probably stifles a lot of it. So in the U.S., especially on public work where, you know, RFPs, firms put forth their, you know, kind of qualifications but there's really nothing on innovation or what the project could look like. It's kind of a very septic means of obtaining work. And it's kind of a little bit, not ageist or elitist, but it definitely doesn't allow younger firms, innovative firms, smaller firms to compete against the bigger firms. And so in Europe, especially France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, a lot of public work is put out as a competition. Some of them are multi-stage competitions, but they're funded. They're judged on architecture quality. They're judged on innovation sustainability and you know cost uh, plays a lot the role in that as well. So I think that the procurement process is one part of it. The other part, I think having a nationalized healthcare system makes makes a pretty big difference. The cost of living there and salaries in general, well the cost of living was lower, the salaries were definitely lower, but the quality of life was so much higher. So the procurement process is a really interesting point there. It sounds like what you're saying is that local And state governments in particular, and then obviously the national government, should reimagine how we're looking at that process instead of saying, let's go for the lowest bid. Let's also consider other factors in how we're selecting for bids. Is that correct? Yeah. So we can take Vienna. So Vienna is social housing. They do these developer competitions. Architects team up with uh, largely nonprofit or limited housing profit associations to put forth a proposal for a parcel of property. The judging is based on the economics of the model, so how affordable the units can be, which is, you know, again, a direct relationship to cost effectiveness, cost effectiveness of the building, how sustainable it is. 
And this is great because Passive House effectively maxes out the number of points on the sustainability side. So they've kind of found a way to incentivize Passive House on the low key. And Vienna is one of the top cities for incorporation of Passive House. They judge it on the architectural quality, right? So how, how you know, the urban quality of the building, how good it looks. Uh, and then lastly, they judge it on the social mix. Is it refugee housing? Is it a mix of multi-generational social housing, young families, hmm. homeless? You know, so they kind of incentivize doing these more kind of radical and deeper interventions. That's really smart. Yeah. So it's not just the economics, right? They're taking in all of these these other components as well. These intersectional factors that affect how the building actually functions in society. Yeah, exactly. So for folks who may not be familiar, could you maybe define Passive House and describe why you think it's essential? I'm assuming you do. Yeah. So Passive House is an ultra-low energy standard that was developed in Germany in the 90s, sort of building on Canadian and American efficiency that was done in the 60s and 70s, kind of during the oil crisis and a little bit thereafter. Basically, what you do is you take a building, let's say it's effectively a box, and then you optimize the insulation. So you're adding additional insulation to reduce the heat loss between inside and outside. You're doing things like using triple pane windows and then making sure there are no thermal breaks, right? So when we build a condo here in Seattle, the concrete floor flies out and becomes a balcony on the exterior. Well, that's effectively like a big radiator fan, right? It's just a direct connection between inside and outside. There's nothing in there to break the concrete. And so Passive House says... It's a heat bridge, right? Yeah, exactly. So Passive House says we got to break that. We need a thermal break. There's a couple of different ways that we can do it. And so it's really just kind of optimizing the heat loss and the heat gains in the building to get something that's a little bit more balanced and, and low energy. The other portion of it is airtightness. So you take a building using tapes, membranes, other components to basically make it airtight. And this is, I think, really important right now, especially on the West Coast with wildfires and everything else, right? We need to keep smoke, particulates, you know, urban areas, same thing, you know, out of the house. The nice thing about optimized insulation and the airtightness and the triple pane windows is it does a really effective job of keeping out kind of loud urban noises as well. Third component of this is an HRV. So we've got this airtight box and super insulated. How are people supposed to breathe, right? So it's kind of the HRV, the heat recovery ventilator is your lungs. And we're poking a couple of holes in the building and directing fresh air. We're filtering that air. We're putting it in the building so the occupants you know, have clean, fresh, filtered air. And then we're extracting all of the stale air out. And as it goes out, the heat is just exchanged within the unit itself. And so it becomes this really phenomenal way of building these buildings that are super low tech, they're super comfortable, and they don't cost a lot to operate. So 100% fresh filtered ventilation, uh, significant savings on energy costs. The numbers I've seen is like 40 to 60%. Is that right? Yeah, I think in the Seattle area, you're looking at about 40 to 60% over energy code. But again, the other side is the intangibles, right? The protection from wildfire smoke, the noise reduction, the comfort, right? Like when we first moved to Seattle, we lived in a really awful apartment with single pane windows. And in winter, those things, it's basically a thermal bridge. And so the condensation would build up on the windows, there'd be water everywhere. And it would get around the edges of the window, turn into black mold issues. Yeah, there are plenty of folks in the U.S. who you know are living in buildings that have single pane windows who are putting you know essentially cellophane over the windows to try to you know keep heat in, yep. and then taking it off in the summer. You mentioned that it's they're simple. So is it simple then to skill folks up in the building industry to passive house standards? I think so. There was a group in the U.S. that was doing a lot of training. Kind of, they would go region to region and do these passive house tradesperson courses. It seems that New York City and Vancouver, British Columbia, are kind of the passive house hotspots in North America right now. New York City, I think, a the price of construction, as well as the proximity to Europe and the high energy costs, right? They kind of make passive house a no-brainer in a lot of ways, and so they've had a lot of success in kind of building up the the scales and infrastructure on the labor side. And Vancouver has has been a lot of the same thing. There's this 
a very active Passive House community, and they've been really pushing education, training for both the designers as well as the city, which I think is important, and then the labor force. So Passive House, as you mentioned, has been around for you know 20 plus years at this point. It just simply hasn't translated across the United States. It hasn't been mandated. It hasn't been incentivized heavily. What are other key innovations, though, that are happening, whether in the last 10, 20 years in construction or maybe coming soon that will improve sustainability or usability? So I think the the value-added wood industry is definitely the hot-button issue right now. We're kind of enamored with CLT uh, in the U.S. CLT was a big thing in Europe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and they're kind of moving on from it. It's still it's still relatively widely used, but uh, they're actually looking at doing taller buildings that are maybe more of a hybrid uh, of concrete and wood, using both where they're kind of more structurally efficient. But then there are other components as well that you know use less fiber, they cost much less, but they're able to achieve a far better fire resistance or you know dealing with utilities and everything else. So there's a number of really, really tall wood buildings that are underway right now. I just saw today that Berlin is going to get a 29-story mass timber building. Wow. The city of Zug in Switzerland just a week ago announced that they're going to do a 28-story mass timber building. I believe that one will be full mass timber minus the elevator and stair core. And it's going to be a mix of, it's like half social housing, ridiculous amenities, yoga studios, music rooms, gyms, gardens, you know, kind of spurs throughout the building, right? So on that side of things, they're going to far exceed anything that we're doing. We'll, we'll see some firms that are doing big, tall mass timber buildings, uh, CLT and glue and beams and columns. But uh, on the social side, I think we're we're going to be lagging far behind. The other big side in Europe is they're moving to these massive and just really beautiful, sustainable eco-districts, right? Like these car-free centers, dense, walkable mobility hubs, incorporating a lot of open space, a lot of social housing, incorporating mass timber buildings. And so one of the things that I think will be really interesting is you have these districts that are going to need a massive amount of wood well, there's going to have to be production facilities and they're going to be close by, right? So right. Berlin has uh, Tegel Airport been decommissioned and they're turning it into the Urban Tech Republic. And it's kind of going to be this big, productive city, innovative lab. And adjacent to that is going to be the Schumacher Quartier, which is going to be a social housing laden uh, mass timber eco district. And a lot of the wood is planned to be assembled and fabricated at the airport directly next door. So I think that you'll start to see these synergies that are going to pop up all over Europe. I'm super jealous. They're really just incredible to watch unroll right now. And then the European Union with its Bauhaus 2.0 movement. Again, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation on the wood side. We'll see much more in terms of sustainability, decarbonized heat pump, refrigerants, things like that. I think we'll just make a bigger difference. So folks who have listened to the show have probably heard me talk about Mass Timber before and how it's basically a revamp of how we use traditional wood construction to make it more effective for modern times, more sustainable, and more able to uh, be used quickly and effectively, essentially bringing in factory uh, concepts in some ways. Can you also explain though, the term you used at the start of that, which was the value-added wood industry and, and how folks are thinking about that? Yeah. So the value-added wood industry is kind of we, taking smaller components of wood, LVLs, uh, normal two-by elements as we would use in the States, and kind of doing a number of different operations. So there's a, there's a number of Swiss and Austrian and German firms that are producing they're called cassettes. So they're these kind of wood tubular floor cassettes that they, they can incorporate insulation, sound insulation in them, fire resistance, sprinklers if needed, utility runs, right? So it's 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 kind of taking the... Using wood with other elements to increase the whole capacity of whatever you're trying to build. With. Yeah, exactly. So it's, so it's using less wood in a more efficient way. In many instances, much more energy efficient 
or sound protective. It's this, it's this entire industry that's kind of cropped up around it. And the schools now in Switzerland and Germany are pushing, you know, robotics and manufacturing, right? right? There's the whole Industry 4.0 push. And for folks who don't know, Industry 4.0 is just the revamp of how we are connecting with our factories and how we're connecting them to the work we're doing, yeah. particularly around the, you know, digitization and smart capacity. Is that a good description? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And again, with the wood, right? It's just how do we how do we take a small element and apply a couple of digital interfaces and you know make something that's elegant that's structural that's cost effective right i think there's a little bit of that, of that in the US right now, but there's a lot of it going on in the industrial construction world in Europe. And I feel like that's something we don't talk a lot about. You mentioned livability earlier and elegance. We tend to think about mass timber and the value-added wood industry. We talk about it to people in the terms of, oh, it's sustainable, it has these benefits. But we don't talk about as much about how wonderful these buildings are to experience and live in. And really, for a lot of folks, that's one of their number one priorities is they want a home that they love to be in. They want a, a building that they walk by and they say, wow, this is beautiful. And maybe that's something we should talk about more as folks who are engaged in this push for sustainable architecture and construction. I think it's smart. Like I, Again, with the same thing with Passive House, the technical stuff is great, but it's the, it's right. the intangibles that are really selling it, right? The reduction in noise, the comfort. I think with Mass Timber, a lot of it is the same way. If we get the costs to be about the same, it's a little bit more expensive upfront than other things, but we're reducing construction duration and holding costs, you know, on the development side, the, that's fine. But it's the haptic stuff. The, the how does it look? How does it feel? Can you smell it? If I live in a concrete box, it's going to be a completely different feeling than if I'm totally. in a well thought out wood box. So. so what can we do to nationally, locally, or otherwise provide incentives for green buildings and the use of mass timber and passive house and other sustainable construction methods and materials? You know, it's funny. I, I tend to fall more on the, uh, there's the carrot and the stick. Right. And I, I tend to fall more on the stick side. And I think a lot of that has to do with working in Europe where the stick side play, plays, I think, a larger role. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons that Passive House has taken off in Europe, the EU passed the nearly zero energy building directive, I think it was about a decade ago, saying by the end of 2020, all new construction effectively had to be close to Passive House levels. So what you saw on the run-up to that, though, was a lot of jurisdictions who started out mandating that for public projects, right? Because they kind of had the wherewithal to, to deal with the, the issues and the funding maybe more than you know, social housing providers would. Uh, the city of Brussels uh, in 2015 adopted Passive House uh, as their requirement for all of their buildings, so before the EU mandate. But what they did was they offered a cash bonus effectively for projects that met it. They trained up city staff to understand what Passive House was. They assisted with training for the labor side. They had this whole ecosystem put in place to get everybody ramped up to understanding you know how this was going to change their construction community and they effectively went from the worst energy code uh, in the european union to the highest so there are paths forward i think that you know, i would love for the city of seattle to come out and say look from here on out all public buildings must be mass timber right. or must incorporate 50 percent mass timber all public buildings must meet passive house the city has the ability to do that right like they could take the lead on that in terms of the incentives the, the construction side here is really weird. Our FAR is much higher than the typical FAR in Europe. So we're already building a lot more per lot. We're already really, really dense. And so I'm not necessarily sure that increasing the density of, of lots, where we're, especially where we're not getting much of a height bonus, is going to see an uptick. I think, and we talked about this in a meeting with the city, the, the big one is design review, right? Like, right. how do we reduce the permit duration the design review duration, 
Uh, I just saw yesterday that... A lot of people build faster. Yeah. yeah. I just saw yesterday, so the city of Brussels, on top of being ridiculous on the passive house stuff now, they're going to require social housing projects be given a permit within 95 days. Wow. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been really interesting, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Folks, you definitely should follow Mike pretty much everywhere you can. Always has a fascinating things to say. He writes regularly for places like The Urbanist and Tree Hugger. Do you want to plug anything else on your, on your way off here, Mike? So I'm still heavily involved in Baugruppen. We're trying to get our mass timber passive house Baugruppen organized and figured out in the near future. So do you mind explaining that really quick for folks who may not have heard of it? Yeah. So a Baugruppen is kind of a, an urban co-housing. I, I like to say it's, it's without the granola. Um, in Germany, a Baugruppen is a group of people that come together and effectively self-develop a multifamily urban housing project. It's awesome. Yeah, you take out the developer's profit and you end up with a building that's generally, in Seattle, we're aiming 15 to 20% lower cost. And then intentional communities, again, passive house, comfortable. We, we really just want to make kind of these model communities. And I think the goal after the first one is kind of grow this, this network. We really want to see more non-market options available in cities like Seattle. So how can folks get involved in that who are interested? I think the easiest way for now is just to contact me on Twitter. And what's your Twitter username? Holtz, H-O-L-Z underscore Bao, B-A-U. And then once we're further along on the uh, the formation and have started kind of initiating talks with some finance people to figure out how we can finance the construction of our project, I think we'll be able to formalize that more. Awesome. I, I'd love to have you back on at some point once you have more information on the project to talk more in depth about how it's going and kind of what next steps are like. Because I think that'd be fascinating to do a, an entire episode just on that concept. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be open to it for sure. Fantastic. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and good luck with the rest of your day. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Growing the Green Economy. If you can take 30 seconds to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it's hugely helpful. These metrics drive how the show gets discovered, and you taking 30 seconds to support the show means the world to me. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, and across social media at Connor Bronsden. Thanks for listening.